Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. Well, this Sunday morning is a really important morning in our church when we celebrate MLK weekend and all the incredible things that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did in our country. And, and, and I really think as I think about his life. This past year, I I read about a a 900-page book called Parting the Waters that chronicled all that he did in the civil rights movement in our country. I I feel like who our church has become over these years is just a testament to the power of what he fought for. I don't know if you've been a part of Fielder Church for very long, you just started tuning in, or you've been a long-time member of this church. Let me go ahead and tell you, if you've been a member of this church for a long time, you know how much our church has changed. I came here 15 years ago, and and originally I was hired to begin our Spanish language ministry as we were trying to diversify as a congregation. But back then, we were almost, almost entirely one culture, one color, and that was completely normal. And now here we are 15 years later, and we are a radically different church. We are so diverse. I was looking at the stats of our last year's survey back in 2020, and, and it showed the makeup of our church culturally and ethnically. And we pretty much mirror the United States of America. We're really close to the same percentages in our country as we are in this church. We're, we're a microcosm of the entire country. And I'm just so amazed at how our church has transitioned over these years. It is a radically and beautifully diverse church that people are astounded by. In fact, there are so many who write articles about our church primarily because of how diverse we've become. And they're amazed that we can pull this together. They see that we're doing two totally different languages, but we're one church. It's not the Spanish church over there, the white church, the black church, the Asian church. We're one church coming together. And it is an incredibly powerful testimony to our culture of how the church can bring diverse people in to be one. And and I think it's important for us from time to time just to stop and to celebrate all that God has done here at Filter Church. To him be the glory. It's not my work, not any previous pastor's work. It is the Spirit's work in our church, and we need to celebrate it. But let me also say, I think right now, I think our unity is being tested by what's taking place in society, especially in our country. I don't know where you were when you first saw some of the images of what took place on Capitol Hill. I remember it vividly. I was in my office and, and I, I got the news a little bit later. Wednesday, January 6th had, 6th had been a really busy day for me. I was just meeting after meeting after meeting. And I didn't even see all the texts that were beginning to come in from my wife who was saying, have you seen what's going on on Capitol Hill? Have you seen the images and the videos? And it was probably around five or so when I finally finished my last meeting and I pulled out my phone and I saw the text. And so I started looking at some of the videos and reading some of the articles. And I was blown away by, by the images, seeing people in red, white, and blue storming the wall, jumping in and breaking down doors and windows and, and sitting in, the, the, in all the different places they shouldn't be, in offices and, and right there in the main room. And I just, I, I couldn't believe this was taking place in my country. It felt like something that would happen in a third world country. And it was happening right here in my own nation's capital. And, and I don't know what you felt, but let me tell you what I felt. I had this sense of like, how did we get to this place where this is what's going on? Did, did you feel that? Listen, I don't know what you were thinking about the event, but let me tell you one of the things that's been equally unsettling for me, not not just the event itself, but also how people have interpreted what the event meant. I've seen so many polar opposite opinions about what took place there. I gotta be honest with you, I've seen a lot of hypocrisy as well. I've seen some people say, you know what, they're, they're justified in doing that kind of violence 
because they're, they're just trying to right or wrong and the pe- people are trying to take over our country and there's voter fraud, so they were right to do that. And some of these people are the same people who condemned violence on Black Lives Matter walks that they had and, and now they're, it's okay here but not over there. But by the way, the other side is true as well. There are some who said no violence when it's about race relations, that's okay, it's an expression, but on Capitol Hill, that's not okay. And the truth is, when we use our right minds, we all realize violence is violence. And if we're followers of Jesus Christ, it's not okay. We can't interpret violence as okay. But even as, why, even as we digest it, even as we say, okay, I don't agree with the tactics and the violence, there are still some people on one side who will say, yeah, but I agree with their motive. I appreciate what they're doing. Then you have other people who would say, man, if there were people of color who were scaling those walls, they would have been shot down. Here's what's so interesting about all the divergent opinions that we have as we try to interpret what took place. All these opinions I've spoken about are opinions of people in our own congregation at Fielder Church. We have that wide an array of opinions about what took place. Listen, on one side, it's a beautiful thing that we have such a diversity of opinion because it shows we're truly a diverse church. But on the other side, it shows me just how hard unity really is. But I also believe that though it may be hard, it is not hopeless. In fact, I believe that right now we have one of the most incredible opportunities for the light of the church to shine as brightly as it has ever shown. I believe as a church we've been lobbed a softball that we can knock out of the park if we'll just keep our eyes on the ball and swing hard at it. I believe this is a chance for us to show the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's, there's a quote by an Englishman that was written Uh, a guy named Sir Philip Gibbs, and he wrote it in a book called The Cross of Peace. And he says this as he's talking about division. I think they're stunning words. He refers to them as fences, fences that divide. Listen to what he says. Let me read this for you. He says, the problem of fences has grown to be one of the most acute that the world must face. Today, there are all sorts of zigzag and crisscrossing fences running through the races and peoples of the world. Modern progress has made the world a neighborhood, but God has given us the task of making it a brotherhood. In these days of dividing walls of race and class, we must shake the earth anew with the message of Christ, in whom there is neither bond nor free, Jew nor Greek, Scythian nor barbarian, but all are one. And what what a powerful quote. But you want to know what makes this quote so powerful for me? This was written in 1935. This is all 85 years ago, this quote is written. Apparently, division is not anything new to our world. And I think, I think though it's not new, it is high time for the church to stand up and be a part of the solution instead of the problem. And I believe because of who we are as the church, the bearers of the gospel of Jesus, we are the only ones who can show that there can be unity even in the middle of a very chaotic, divided world. And I think specifically, Fielder Church, we have an incredible opportunity that's been given us because we are a diverse church. Because we have so many nationalities and cultures and skin colors and and people groups and socioeconomic levels gathered together in one church, whether that's a part of our digital services or our live services, we have an incredible opportunity to show we are a microcosm of this entire country. And though the country may be divided, if we can be united, we can show the power of the gospel. And so I believe it's fitting for us this particular Sunday as we celebrate all that Dr. King, that he fought for and died for, and more importantly, all that our Savior Jesus Christ fought for and died for, I believe today's the time for us to talk, to talk about how the church can be the solution. And we're gonna do it by, by giving you three simple steps, three things that we can do as the church to be a part of the solution, to bring together unity, even in, in a very divided time. So I, if you're a note-taking kind of person, I want you to write down these steps because they're sequential steps 
What that means is you can't move on to step two until you've accomplished step one. And you can't move on to step three, which is really the answer, until you accomplish step two and step one. They're sequential. They move in order. So let, let me start with the first thing. Here's what I want you to write down. Step number one, we have to lower your pride by elevating your brokenness. Write that down just like you see it on your screen. Lower your pride by elevating your brokenness. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I mean that as long as we have walls of pride, as long as we think we're right and they're wrong, we've got it together and they're bad, we're the hero, they're the villain, as long as we think that way, we will always stay polarized and divided. We'll never see unity. We have to lower our pride. And I know that sounds easy, but let me tell you, it's incredibly hard. Lowering your pride, it'll go against every bit of your flesh. Every bit of your natural state will be to assume that you've got the right perspective and they've got the wrong perspective. And it'll be to polarize, to get along with people who think like you, who talk like you, who look like you, who act like you. And they're going to further make you think that your opinion is the right opinion and everyone else is wrong. Here's what's really interesting. Social media actually exacerbates this problem. I don't know if you've seen the Netflix show called The Social Dilemma. You should watch it if you haven't seen it before. But it really details out how social media is actually designed to foster some of this problem. What it does is that there are algorithms that are at work on social media that are intended to feed you what they think you want to hear, what you want to read, the kinds of opinions you would naturally agree with. If you're an evangelical Christian, it'll naturally feed you things that align with that. If you support Black Lives Matter, it'll naturally feed you things that align with that. And it'll, what it'll do, it'll give you a myopic view of culture, a very narrow-minded view of culture, where you'll start to believe that everybody around you thinks exactly like you do. And here's the problem with that. You're going to get around people who don't think like you. You're going to go, what's wrong with them? And can't they see what I see? Haven't they read what I've read? And they're thinking the exact same thing when they look at you. Can't they see what I see? Haven't they read what I've read? And what's happened is that we are structured in a place that polarizes and creates walls of pride. I'm right, you're wrong. And those walls must be torn down. And I believe the church has the one thing that can tear those walls down, the battering ram that can break down walls of pride. It is called the gospel. You're going to see this morning that the Apostle Paul, when he wants to deal with the city of Ephesus, a city that was incredibly divided as well, and he wants to break down those dividing walls, he comes at it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can find it in the book of Ephesians. I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to be in verses 11 through 16 this morning as we start off this first step that we have to go through. But before we jump into the text, let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was a mega city. It was this huge, vast port city that had a lot of wealth in it, but it created a disparity, a disparity between the, the haves and the have-nots. There were a lot of very wealthy and a lot of very poor. It was a very religiously divided, uh, politically divided, socioeconomically divided city. And there was a lot of issues in that city that Paul needed to confront. But Paul also knew there was an opportunity that if the church should come together in a city like Ephesus, everybody would see the power of the gospel. And so listen to his words of how the gospel will be the solution to this divided city. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And look at the power of Paul's words. The hostility can be killed. It can be crucified with Christ on the cross because when he died, he broke down the dividing walls of hostility, broke down the walls of pride and brought these two groups, the Jew and the Gentile, groups that hated each other, brought them together to be one, one people, one person united in Christ Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. But he says this power that's been harnessed in the church can only be harnessed when you understand the nature of the gospel. You see, the gospel, it's a wrecking ball. The gospel exposes our brokenness, tears us down enough to realize we're not better than anybody else. This is exactly the argument he's making about the Gentiles. He talks about these Gentiles, and he says that these Gentiles, remember, you Gentiles, you were, you were alienated, you were excluded, you were strangers, you had no hope and without God in the world. Now let me tell you who he's talking about. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. 99.99% of the people watching this right now are Gentiles. You go, what's a Gentile? A Gentile is just anybody who's not a Jew. There are very few of you, could be a few Jews watching or some Messianic Jews, but the vast majority of you watching this are Gentiles. Now let me tell you why that matters. It means we're all in the same boat. It means it doesn't matter if we're black or white or Hispanic or Asian. It doesn't matter if we're young or old, rich or poor. If we lean right, lean left, that doesn't matter. We're all in the same boat. We're excluded. We're alienated. We're strangers. We're on the playground and the teams have been picked and we've been left outside. No one picked us. No one wants us. That's who we are as Gentiles. We are all in the same boat and it's a sinking boat. That's what he's trying to say over here. And he's saying that we have to recognize our brokenness. We go, well, what about the Jew? I mean, is the Jew okay? Well, no, the Jew needs the Messiah as well. But that's not his point here. His point is you Gentiles must know your place of brokenness. He's trying to level the playing field to help us realize we're not better than anybody else. We don't have it figured out. In fact, this passage in verses 11 through 16 hinges upon the gospel that's given in verses 1 through 10 in Ephesians 2. I want to go back to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. I want you to see just how messed up we Gentiles really are. Here's what it says. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So that, that's who we are by nature. We are children of wrath. We are sons of disobedience. We're carried about by the prince of the power of the air. That's talking about Satan. We're controlled by our passions and our selfishness. And we got nothing we can do to overcome it. Let me tell you what this is saying. This is saying we might think we're the hero and they're the villains. This is saying, no, no, you're the villain. And even your salvation isn't because you've done something good and you became the hero. No, no, look at verses 8 through 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. So this is saying you didn't become the hero, you were still the villain, but the hero Jesus saved you from your villainhood and brought you over to the kingdom of light. When you recognize your position, all of a sudden you realize you're not better than anybody else and your mind is not better than anybody else's either. In fact, if you were to go to the book of Romans, chapter three, the apostle Paul continues to help us just understand how depraved our minds really are. Listen to what he says. I know I'm moving around quickly, but I want you to see the scriptures here. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. 
He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Did you hear his words? There's no one good. There's no one who understands. Let me tell you what that means. It means we don't have this thing figured out. And even when we come to faith, we still have a warring in our flesh between our sin nature and how we're being transformed, which means we have to have a whole lot of humility as we think about our own opinions that we hold. And if we'll come to the place where we'll, we'll just fixate our eyes on our own brokenness, elevate our own brokenness enough to realize we don't have it figured out, we'll be able to lower our pride and that'll move us into step number two. So step one, we got to lower our pride by elevating our brokenness. Why? So that's step two, we can learn to listen by listening to learn. We need to learn to listen by listening to learn. You're going, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. It means the only way we can actually learn to listen is when we listen to somebody else in order to learn from them. We have to learn to listen by listening in order to learn from them. Yeah, I think so many of us, we hear people talk to us, but we're not really listening to them. Because the whole time we're just arming our defense, how we're going to prove them wrong or discrediting what they have to say. We don't value them enough. It's because we think we're right and we think they're wrong. Pride is coming back in. But when we lower that pride, we'll actually discover we have something to learn from them. And when we listen in order to learn from them, then we've actually learned how to truly listen. I love how James, he's a half-brother of Jesus, puts it. He's about to drop two verses on us that are just bombshell verses. And this is like the solution to our country's problems right here. You, you should memorize these two verses. Book of James, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Listen to what it says here. This is gold. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Oh, man. <laughs> if we could learn that, that alone, if we would just be quick to listen, and just shut our yap for a little bit, be slow to speak, slow to anger. How many problems could we solve with that truth alone? <laughs> and, and I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, preach it, Brother Jason, preach it. Tell those people to start listening. Listen, before you think I'm talking to them, let me give you another news flash. I'm talking to you. I'm saying you're the one who struggles to listen. And while I'm condemning you, let me go ahead and condemn myself. I'm right there with you. I think so many of us struggle to listen way more than we even realize. We think we listen because we're hearing words coming at us, but we're not genuinely listening to people. So the real question isn't, do you think you're a good listener? The real question is, do other people think you're a good listener? And maybe an even better question is, do people who completely disagree with you and you disagree with them, do they still feel like you're a good listener? Because the truth is, even if we disagree with somebody completely, we should at least hear them out. We should at least listen to their words and see if we can learn something from them because we know that our minds are darkened because of our depraved mind. We've already understood the gospel. We've lowered our pride because we've elevated our brokenness. And because of it, we now realize that other person may have something that we don't know. And we don't have to think we got it all figured out. We can listen. But what I see so much of the world doing is talk, 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 and very little listening. And the moment we don't listen, we're proving we think we're better than the other person. I see this in all kinds of cultural ways. I, I see it as, as a Latino who's in a, a very, when I first came here, especially a very Anglo staff culture. 15 years ago, when I came to Fielder, I was the only non-Anglo on staff. And there was a little bit of a culture shock I had specifically as it relates to time. 
I had to discover the hard way that in an Anglo culture, time is really important. Punctuality is really important. And I struggled with it. Like, why are you people so bent? Like I'm two minutes late and you're ticked off, you know? And I don't understand what's wrong with this until I was talking to a few Anglo brothers and sisters in the church. And, and they said, Jason, there's a reason why. Listen, if you're on time, you're late which I thought was crazy. Like, what does that mean if you're on time, you're late? Well, they were saying, no, you're supposed to be there early. And that shows the person that you value them. And I realized in Anglo culture, time is a source of value. And when I don't waste your time, when I show up early, I'm showing that you matter to me, I'm proving value. And when I show up late, I'm telling you unintentionally that I don't value you. And it was like these explosions went off in my mind. Like, okay, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Instead of getting angry with Anglos for being cold and so punctual all the time, I realized there's a reason why. But then on the other side, I was able to help some of my Anglos and brother, brothers and sisters realize why Latinos are late all the time. It's not because we're lazy or because we're disorganized. It's because we have a different value system. In the, in the Hispanic culture, familia, friendships are really important. And so if I have to be 15 minutes early to that meeting, that means I got to leave my people 15 minutes early and that tells them they don't matter to me. You see, in, in Latino culture, lingering means you're important to me. And so I linger, which means I might be late to the next thing, but I'm trying to tell these people I love them, they matter to me. And when I told them that and they listened, they were like, oh my goodness, that makes so much more sense. We could understand each other's cultures if we would just stop and listen. Because the moment we don't listen, we're showing, we think we're better than the people around us. Now listen, I, I know Anglo and Hispanic culture and time issues, that's kind of a safe little thing to talk about, but I want to go into an unsafe area. I wanna talk about something I think I need to talk about specifically this morning on MLK Weekend. I wanna talk specifically about the black-white divide in our country. Listen, I, I, I sit in a unique position. It's a dangerous position. I, I, being Hispanic, I am not white, I'm not black, which means I kinda of look as an outside party at the discussion and the debate between the black-white divide. I also realize that if we can in our country solve the black-white divide, it'll help Hispanics and Native Americans and Asians and everybody, all of us, be better off. And so important to me. So I watch it with very focused eyes, trying to hear the debate. And what I see so often is a lot of talking and very little listening. Now, I know I'm going to step on some toes, and I apologize. Let me just go ahead and tell you from the beginning, I don't intend to. But I'm just trying to tell you what I see as an Hispanic person watching this black-white debate going on. What I see are things happening like, you know, this... This, this past year when we saw the murder of George Floyd and, and um, Ahmaud Arbery and, and Breonna Taylor and, and you see the, the black community, especially our own black brothers and sisters, rise up saying, I'm, I'm so sick of feeling afraid because of the color of my skin. Look at these travesties that are taking place. When are we going to do something about it? And, and I see that happen. And, th and then I, I see my white brothers and sisters go, well, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to to cause any problems here, I think our real issue is that we make everything about race. You know, it's always about race. Everything has to be about race. And what we don't realize is that as long as we keep making everything about race, we're never going to get over it. Let's just come to the conclusion that we're one human race, we're equals, and let's stop talking about it so much so we can finally heal from it. To which my, my black brothers and sisters say, well, I wish I could stop talking about it, but I'm black. And the color of my skin affects how I live life every single day. Because in case you hadn't heard, there was this institution in the United States of America called slavery, and I still suffer the ramifications of it. To which my white brothers and sisters say, listen, man, I hate slavery as much as you do. I, 
I think it is an abomination from the pit of hell itself. I would fight against it tooth and nail. I, I hate the institution. I'm so grateful our country finally voted it down. It should have happened so much sooner. It never should have been a part of our country. But it's been voted down. Why can't we just move past this? To which my black brothers and sisters say, I, I wish I could just move past it, but look at the disparity. It's not just that it happened 100 plus years ago and then it's over. The ramifications of it have created a divide in our country where I am at a disadvantage. There is such a massive disparity in our country. Look, look at the socioeconomic disparity. Look at the, the amount of people in jails. Look at the people convicted for crimes. Look at educational disparity. It's not over. There's still problems. And, and I need you to do something about it. I need you to talk about it, my white brothers and sisters. To which my white brothers and sisters say, listen, you, you're wanting me to be crucified. You want me to talk about this, but every time I open my mouth, I get accused of being a bigot and a racist and being a white supremacist. And I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is the worst thing for me to ever talk about it because I can't ever talk about it without being condemned. I'm gonna be accused of saying something wrong, of thinking something wrong. I just don't have the opportunity, which is why I wish we could just stop talking about it and move on from it. To which my black brother and sister says, again, I wish I could move on from it, but the color of my skin affects how I live life every day. And the cycle starts all over again. And I, I hear this debate and I see all the talking, but I see very little listening. And I think both sides have some points that are important, points that we have to stop and recognize. There's a heart behind it. Even if we don't agree with the conclusions of another person, we can still honor the heart behind the feeling. And so I, I want to talk to those of you who are my white brothers and sisters right now. I, I want to say to you, we have to listen to our black brothers and sisters who are talking about the disparity in our country right now. Let's just talk about the economic disparity right now in our country. Right now, the average black family earns around $40,000 a year, and the average white family earns around $70,000 a year. That is a massive discrepancy. And that discrepancy means something. Well, let's talk about education right now. Right now, black children, about 40% of them will be able to make it into a, finish a four-year college. With white children, the percent 74. That's almost double. Now that means something. Well, what does that mean? Or, or let's talk about business right now. Let's talk about Fortune 500 companies. The 500 biggest companies. Right now, there are four CEOs of those Fortune 500, 500 different companies that are black. That's not even 1% of the Fortune 500 companies, yet in America, 13.4% of the American population is black. Okay, that disparity means something. So I, I don't know if we have figured out what that means entirely as far as solutions, but it means there's a problem. And our black brothers and sisters are saying, would you just look at the data? Would you just see there's still a disparity? We can't just move on and imagine everything's okay. And I think my white brothers and sisters, my Hispanic and my Asian and my Native American brothers and sisters need to say, okay, Let's look at that and see what that means. But let me also speak to my black brothers and sisters and say that I have so many white brothers and sisters who are saying, I, I desperately want to find a place to talk about this, but I, so, I feel so afraid. I'm going to say something. I'm going to offend somebody. I'm going to do something wrong and I'm going to get labeled and I don't want to be labeled. I don't want to hurt somebody, but I need to learn. I need to grow and I don't have a safe space to do it. And I need our black brothers and sisters and our Latino brothers and sisters and our Asian brothers and sisters and our Native American brothers and sisters to create space for our white brothers and sisters to have opportunities to talk and to learn and to grow and not be easily offended, but to create conversation. They need that from us. And we need to create that space. 
at the end of the day, what I'm asking is that we would lower our pride enough and elevate our brokenness enough to say, I'm going to genuinely learn to listen by listening to learn from that person, by hearing their heart. And though I may not agree with all their conclusions, I will honor and cherish the heart behind their feelings. That will bring incredible difference. And if we can actually learn to listen by listening to learn, that'll, be, that'll move us to the third and final step, the most important step of all. So we've now come to the place where we said, all right, I've got I've to lower my pride by elevating my brokenness, and that'll allow me to learn to listen by listening to learn. So that step number three, last thing, let love rule instead of fear. We've got to let love rule instead of fear. What I, what I feel like I see in society right now is that fear is ruling, that there are fear mongers around who are just jerking us around by preying upon fears. And that fear is dividing us. I see it politically. I, I, don't, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you land on. If you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat or somewhere else, if you look at our two major political parties, they are warring using fear and hate as the number one ingredient toward the other party. I, I've been through a number of rounds of, of election times and every election has been touted and trumpeted as the most important election in the history of our nation that if we don't win this election, our nation is going to crumble and they're going to win. And every single time we have an election cycle, the other person, the other person who votes differently is portrayed as the enemy and as the problem. And we got to fear them and we got to hate them. And most times we're voting against them more than we're voting for the candidate of our political party. And that's true for Republicans and Democrats. It seems to be that right now we think politically we win the war by fear and hate. And so many of us believers in Jesus are falling prey to that and hate is brewing inside of us because we think we're hating evil. But to take our cues from Star Wars, I want you to remember what happened to Luke Skywalker. Here he is and the Emperor Palpatine, the, the personification of evil, is trying to generate hate in Luke Skywalker and he's hating evil. But as he hates, even though he's hating evil, he's heading toward the dark side. And that's the same way it is with us. When we let fear and hate rule is going to take us to a dark place because that is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is love. Self-sacrificing, agape, unconditional love. And you don't have to look long in this Bible to realize that it is only when love rules that you and I are going to be able to find the harmony in the unity that the gospel brings. I think the apostle John, he states it as beautifully as anybody. First John chapter four, verses 19 to 21. Listen to what he says here. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, who, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Makes it really clear right here. We cannot say we love God if we do not love our brothers and sisters. And it doesn't say our brothers and sisters who look like us or vote like us or think like us. It says the wide variety of the church, all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we have to love each other because that's how we show we love God. Love is what wins. And love is what brings unity because when you know you are loved, then you're willing to listen. Now, I know this is as cliche as can be, and I'm going to say it anyway. You've heard it before. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. But I want you to know that is an incredibly true statement. Until people feel loved, they don't want to hear you. They won't be able to hear you. But when we get to a place where our black brothers and sisters feel that they are loved and they are heard by our white brothers and sisters and our Hispanic brothers and sisters and so on, then unity comes. 
when our white brothers and sisters feel like they are cherished and loved by their black brothers and sisters and their Hispanic and Asian and Native American, when we feel loved, then all of a sudden unity is the result of that. It is love that wins. But let me remind you what I've already said. We're never going to get to a place where we let love rule until we first start to learn to listen. And we have to listen with the intention of learning from the other person. But we'll never be able to learn to listen to others until we first elevate our brokenness and lower down our pride. And we'll never be able to lower our pride until we let the gospel of Jesus be the wrecking ball that breaks us. So it all comes full circle right back to the gospel. And that's what I want to remind you of. The gospel is the central truth that you and I are broken people. We're all on the same level playing field. But the gospel says that every single one of us as broken as we are can be a part of the solution as Christ redeems us and lets us join hands with other redeemed brothers and sisters that are equally broken, that have found the same Savior. And so I think there's nothing better that we could do at the finish of a service that talks about unity in the middle of diversity than to celebrate the gospel of Jesus through the taking of the Lord's Supper. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And so those of you who are watching online, make sure every believer among you has a piece of bread and has the cup. Because we're going to remember the two elements that show us, that prove to us that God has the power to do more. Like I said at the beginning of this service, the beginning of this sermon, I'm so amazed at all God has done at Fielder Church. The way he's brought together all this diversity so we could be such a beautifully diverse church. But I believe this is just the beginning. I believe that God wants to do infinitely more and I believe it because of these two elements we're about to celebrate, because of the bread which symbolizes the body of Christ and the cup which symbolizes the blood of Christ. I believe because of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, there is greater unity and the world can see greater power as we become one people. And you, yes, you, with all your baggage and your brokenness can become a part of the solution, not because you're good enough, but because the gospel is powerful enough. The question is, would you prepare your heart to believe it as you take it in a moment? Now, before we take the Lord's Supper, though, let me say there are some of you watching this and you're never going to experience the gospel power until you come to your own faith in the gospel of Jesus. It said it well in Ephesians chapter 2. We're not saved by works. You know, we're depraved in mind. We're broken. We have no hope apart from the work of the gospel. You can't save yourself, but you don't have to. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sin. And if you'll just say, okay, I'm going to give up my attempts to save it. I'm going to try to be good enough. I'm going to try to make my way into heaven. I'm going to say, Jesus, only you can save me. If you can come to that place, you can repent of your sins. You can place your faith in Jesus Christ and you can be saved. And that's when you begin to see the power of the gospel in your own life. If you need to do that today, during this next song, I want to encourage you to respond to the gospel this morning. You can do so by going to, the, going to your computer during this next song. You can go to fielder.org slash next step just like you see it on your screen. Or if you've got your phone, you can text the word next step to 94253. And that's going to take you right to the, the site where you can let us know that God is working, that you're ready to trust in Christ, that you're ready to take a step of faith. And we pastors can pray with you and, and connect with you. But please, during this next song, as we're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper, take that step of faith now. Don't wait for later. Do it now. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, I want you to prepare your heart during this next song. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember what the gospel has done. And when this time is over, I'll lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper.